welcome to Grok Science. My name is Danny, and today I'm joined with uh, Christy Wilcox. She is a postdoc at the University of Hawaii studying toxins, and she recently wrote a book called Venomous, which goes into some interesting examples of different types of venomous organisms we find in the natural world. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you for having me. So to start off, um, could you tell us what is a venom exactly? So a venom is a toxic cocktail that is injected into another creature through some kind of wound. And it doesn't matter how big or small the wound is, but if it's actively shoved into another creature, then it's a venom. Um, we tend to think of venoms in contrast with poisons, which are another kind of toxin. But the poisons are absorbed, uh, inhaled, or ingested. So the distinction being sort of the route of delivery. I see. So they're both toxins, but venoms are uh, injected. Um, poisons can come in through other means. Yep. Great. Um, so does that mean only animals can make uh, venoms? Or what are like plants or bacteria? Uh, plants can make venoms. There are a couple examples of venomous plants, uh, mostly like stinging nettles that have sort of this active stinging process. But bacteria tend to not have it's a little bit harder because they don't have the physical structures to inject. Um, so what can you tell us about the diversity of different toxins that are out there? I understand. I mean, from reading your book, I understand it's, it's quite diverse. There, there are lots of different varieties of venom, lots of different toxins. I mean, you find venomous animals on almost every single branch of the tree of life. So, of course, there's an incredible amount of diversity. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of convergence in terms of what those toxins actually do. And they tend to target certain vital systems in our bodies, specifically either our nervous system or our blood. Gotcha. And um, how do uh, animals or plants, I guess, use these uh, venoms? So venoms can be used in a variety of ways. The two sort of major categories would be either offensively, so to capture prey, or defensively to prevent yourself from becoming prey. Um, and so you tend to see a lot of venoms that are either paralytics or um, cause big changes in the blood pressure, things like that. Those are predatory venoms usually. Um, their goal is to stop the animal that you're trying to catch in its tracks, whereas um, defensive venoms tend to focus on pain production. I see, because that deters, you know, if someone gets pain, then they'll run away from the food or something like this? Yeah, yeah. Usually when things hurt, we think, okay, time to stop what I'm doing and, and reassess. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so what sort of uh, venom do you work on currently? Currently I work with uh, jellyfish venoms, particularly box jelly venoms. Um, I'm looking at, in specifically, I'm looking uh, under the tutelage of Dr. Angel Yanagihara. I'm looking at sort of the best first aid measures and whether or not different first aid measures can help uh, reduce the impacts of a sting. Oh, cool. And so are box venom or box jelly venoms defensive or offensive? Box jelly venoms, well, they can be defensive, but their primary function is offense. Their primary function is to capture prey. I see. So when we get stung by them, are they trying to capture us in some way, or is it kind of we're a, side, <laughs> a bystander? We're, we're a bystander. We're more of an accidental effect or, or perhaps a defensive sting. But what's really interesting is that when you look at how their venoms work, their venoms target blood cells 
um, and particularly with this pore forming molecule called a porin, they cause um, massive release of potassium, which causes a hyperkalemic state, which can stop your heart, right? So this is the, that's the worst case scenario with a box jelly. When we look at that, the difference between humans and fish in that respect is that fish have nucleated red blood cells. So their red blood cells are a lot tougher than ours. So the box jelly venom is actually more potent, you know, per gram, so to speak, against us than it is against a fish of the same size. Can people die from box jelly stings? Oh, absolutely. Um, there are several dozen deaths a year, at least, that we know of. Um, part of the problem is that in some the areas where box jelly stings are particularly pernicious, there's very limited reporting and and data collection. So places that are sort of these these really rural fishing communities in the Indo-Pacific, especially the Pacific, um, we don't have good numbers for how many people are, are hurt or killed by box jellies every year, but we know that there are a significant number of, of deaths. Hmm. And what do people do to, you know, once they got stung by a box jelly and they find out that it is a box jelly, what's the course of action? Well, the best course of action for you to take is to uh, rinse the tentacles off with vinegar, lots and lots of vinegar, um, because vinegar actually inhibits the stinging cells from firing. So it prevents the, the sting from getting any worse. And some of our studies, we've found that less than 1% of the stinging cells that are on a tentacle actually fire in that initial contact. And so you have the potential to make your sting a whole lot worse if you don't do the best practices after that point. So you want to do that. Um, if it's a big box jelly and if it's, um, the, I mean, obviously any signs of systemic problems like difficulty breathing, losing consciousness, those sorts of things, I mean, medical attention as quickly as possible. You want to make sure that they've got a doctor monitoring them. But but vinegar to remove the tentacles, and then for yourself, for the pain afterwards, you can uh, immerse in hot water, hot but not scalding. <laughs> so there's no, like, anti-venom or anything in this case? There is an anti-venom to one of the species in Australia, but its usefulness has been questioned by several studies. Um, and in, in most species, no, there isn't. And have you ever been uh, stung by a box jelly? Not in a serious way. I've gotten a little piece of tentacle on me here and there, but nothing nothing like getting stung. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, reading your book, you have some stories of stings that you've encountered in your life. Um, I was actually wondering if you could share with our viewers one story. I don't think it's one where you got stung, but uh, could you tell us a bit about bullet ants and your experience with them? Oh, goodness. Bullet ants are, are one of the most fascinating venomous species, I think. Um they're called bullet ants, first off, because the pain that you experience during a sting is supposed to be equivalent to getting shot, which to me is just a fascinating fact in and of itself. <laughs> because it would require someone to have been both shot and receive a bullet ant to make that sort of assessment. Yeah, I would really, I'd like to know who decided that, <laughs> and whether or not they had any personal experience with both. Um, but so they, they are one of the most painful things on the planet, um, as far as we know. And there's there's been some uh, entomologists, uh, particularly entomologist Justin Schmidt, who's actually been stung by a variety of different ants and bees and wasps. And he says they're the worst. So I believe him. Uh, wait, on purpose? Um, yes. 
<laughs> he's, uh, well, I don't know if it was initially on purpose, but I think at a certain point he'd gotten stung by enough different species that he just sort of decided to start comparing them. And he wrote this wonderfully colorful index uh, called the Schmidt Pain Index, which he explains the different types of pain and, and rates them on a scale of one to four. Uh, but anyway, these are, so these are the most painful ants, or as far as we know. And uh, they are everywhere in the Amazon, at least where I was. I mean, I, I found saw dozens of them, and I did not realize how common they were. And then uh, for me, I was debating at the time whether or not to actually get stung, just to see what it was like. So is this before or after you learned you knew about the Schmidt guy? Um... Oh, this is after. No, no, I, I knew how bad it would supposedly be. Um, but I still thought it was one of those things that might be better to explain from experience. And I decided against that. And then uh, I came home from my trip to the Amazon and did my laundry and found a dead bullet ant at the bottom of my laundry machine after I pulled out my laundry. I I can't imagine how many times that ant had the opportunity to sing me. I mean, I must have... I, I, I mean, I packed the clothes into that thing, you know, with my bare hands, you know, no no regard for no, the idea that there could be a bullet ant in there. And I pulled them out of there and put them in the washer. I mean, that ant must have just been barely missing me every time. So in the field of studying toxins, do most people do field work and have, you know, the chance to be exposed to these toxins? Or are people like, you know, lab rats doing some sort of biochemistry? I think a lot of people are really excited by the animals themselves so they enjoy being a part of the field work but even the people that do a lot of field work I mean they spend a good amount of time in the lab they're not just wrangling animals 24 7. Gotcha um so when you're wrangling animals to study venoms does that mean you have to somehow get the venoms out of them? Yes and that, depending on the animal that can be a very simple or very complicated process. Have you had any experience extracting venoms from an animal? Um, I mean, I've extracted venoms from lionfish and from jellies, uh, but I have not been much of a, a snake wrangler or anything like that. Gotcha. Well, could you uh, explain to us how exactly you uh, extract a venom from a, a lionfish first? So from a lionfish, there isn't a good way to extract a very pure venom, which has actually been one of the really big obstacles in the field for studying lionfish venom in depth and we don't actually know as much about lionfish venom as you would think we do we we know very little about it um but basically you they have this tissue that is present in the grooves of their spine and you grind that up <laughs> that's about it <laughs> um and so i i want to ask uh why did you choose to write this book so i really wanted to showcase these animals for how incredible they are, because I feel like, at least in modern times, they've become the species that we love to hate. And so people talk about, say things like, oh, they're, the only good snake is a dead snake, or, oh, I kill every spider I get the chance to see, you know. And, and I think that's a really, really fundamentally misunderstanding these animals, and, and not only their actual relative danger to us, but they're amazingness and awesomeness and so I really wanted to showcase these animals and tell their side of the story and, and explain how they work and, and what makes them so special. 
Nice. Well, yeah, I learned so much from reading it. You definitely um, did a good job in that sense. I, I feel a lot more knowledgeable about the diversity of toxins that are out there. Oh, good. Um, so what is it like being a science blogger versus writing a book? Um, it's really, really different. <laughs> um, for me, it was definitely an interesting transition to go from sort of blog writing, which is generally considered, even when you write a long blog, you're talking about a couple thousand words to writing chapters, which are, you know, eight to 10,000 words, and trying to, to keep a narrative and, and string together this, this extreme, extreme long form, you know, variety versus the day-to-day -day writing of a blogger. And so for me, it was, it was a weird transition, and it was definitely not automatic. But what was really great about it is that I became so much more comfortable with length. And so one of the things that has happened since writing the book or since starting writing the book is that my blogging has gotten longer. So I, I'm more comfortable writing, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 8,000 word blog posts instead of just short sort of newsy items. Do you have an idea for a book that you may try in the future or? I hope to write another book. I, I definitely hope to, but we'll, we'll have to see how this one does first. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, well, this is the part of the show that we call the Grokatron 5000. And what basically what that entails is I'm going to ask you a few multiple choice questions. And for a lucky listener of our radio show, um, should you get three of those questions right, they'll be able to receive a copy of your book, which I can assure everybody is a great read. Are you ready to play? Oh, goodness. Pressure is on. Okay, let's go. I figured I'd choose some different questions, maybe uh, about toxic animals and so forth, some uh, trivia, and uh, we'll see how this goes. Oh, you have? Oh, then this one should be really easy. <laughs> what do you think the texture of a jellyfish is? When you eat it, that is. Is it A, slimy, B, crunchy, C, soft, or D, prickly? Oh, well, okay. Based on my personal experience, that's actually a tough question just because it kind of went between slimy and soft. But I'll go with soft. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, people often <laughs> soft but like people say like rubber bandish is like one of the most reported it was, textures yeah it was sort of noodly um noodly. the ones that i had it was it was sort of like a, a rice noodle or something <laughs> okay um question number two what sometimes venomous animal i don't think they're all venomous uh is indiana jones afraid of is it a spiders b platypuses c snakes or d jellyfish uh, it would definitely be snakes, though I kind of wish it was platypuses because that would have made a much better video. <laughs> I think so. I think so as well. <laughs> the pit of platypuses, mm -hmm. right? That's, that would be amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, third and maybe last question. Um, what line of superhero comics introduced an arch enemy who is a sentient alien black goo named Venom? Was it A, the Justice League? B, The Amazing Spider-Man, C, Batman, or D, The Astonishing X-Men? Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man. Ah, correct. And that's it. <laughs> Thank you very much for playing. No problem. <laughs> I'm glad I could, I could perform for the uh, lucky listener. <laughs> okay, uh, so that's about all the time we have today. Do you want to leave us with a little bit what you think the book should accomplish or what you hope people do with your book? Sure. Well, I, first off, I hope everyone who reads it enjoys it. But 
I hope that people really take away um, a sense of wonder and and a desire to sort of learn more and maybe do more for the venomous biodiversity on this planet. Cool. Thank you very much for joining us on Grok Science. Great. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs>